1: Hiya, how you doing? Yeah, you're right, I sound a little cheery. It's because we've had a really sunny day here today. Uh, I am speaking to you from the past, but not too distant past. It's Saturday night, we've had a nice sunny day um, here in London town. So actually we spent the day in the garden. I say it was sunny, but I should probably give you some context that it was actually incredibly brisk still it's about 11 degrees so I wouldn't describe it as balmy but that didn't stop a little bit of uh, deck chair action in the garden and playing outside and t-shirts and we did go out without any coats which was pretty crazy but felt good and one of my kids got stuck in a tree for a minute which I found very funny when I probably should have been helping him that was across the road in the park But he's down down safely now, just in case you're worried about that. He's completely fine. That was Ray. He loves climbing trees. If you know any small people, if you're the parent to a small person, do your small people like scaring you by climbing up trees? My eight-year-old Ray will climb right to the top, and I've had to rescue him a couple of times. In fact, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but one time we were out, and um, he lost his footing and found himself dangling. Probably probably something like 10 foot above the ground. <laughs> I'm laughing, remembering. And it was just me and him. And I stood underneath him and I said, Ray, look at me, Ray. Look at me in the... <laughs> look in the eye, Ray. There's only one thing you can do. You're going to have to let go and I'm going to catch you. And he went, okay. And I went, one, two, three. And on three, he let go. And I found myself quickly shutting my eyes and covering my face with my arms. And an instinctive thing of, oh my goodness, a quite a... You know, big eight-year-old Charles, but to a land on my head. So I did kind of half catch him, but he did slightly hurt one ankle. I'm sorry, that doesn't put me in a good light, but I just wasn't... I was prepared with the talk, but not the walk, I think you would say. But anyway, it didn't stop him. He's still climbing trees. So this week's guest is actually a really exciting one because it's somebody that I've been a fan of for absolutely ages, uh, an amazing designer called Rosa Bloom. And I didn't know very much about Rosa Bloom, except that her name was the same name as her clothing line, Rosa, Rosa Bloom Clothing, which I guess is primarily started out as festival wear. But it's so incredibly beautiful that for me, I've never worn it um, solely at festivals. I've worn it for whenever I need to feel like a superhero, I wear it for stage clothes. She makes these beautiful clothes, essentially cat suits and play suits, that are made with these gorgeous, huge, iridescent sequin discs. So you feel like you're covered in the most beautiful of fish scales when you're wearing them. And um, I wanted to speak to her. I didn't know very much about her at all, except that she made these outfits. She's had a nice tone of voice in, you know, the emails I was getting from the company and on her website. And I knew that she had changed her name by deed poll to Rosa Bloom. And her husband had two, so I knew that they had a little boy who also had the surname Bloom, and they sort of started a new family name as Bloom. And that intrigued me enough to get started. I thought that sounds like an interesting person that's done that. Little did I know until she came round with Rosa that she'd also been uh, grown up as part of a commune, that her husband had done the majority of childcare when she was running her business, and actually went through postnatal depression that was very similar to the maternal kind rather than the traditional paternal kind so i learned all sorts about how the hormones work when you're raising a newborn and who's the primary carer, and how it affects what's going on with you emotionally and internally and while i'm talking to you i've got my cat rizzo really staring at me. what is it rizzo are you intrigued by what i'm saying you know what rizzo's got quite, quite a sparkly collar but i reckon one of rosa bloom sequin things around her neck would look awesome rosa if you're listening maybe consider a line of cat collars <laughs> That no, I don't. <laughs> the market is tiny. It would just be Rizzo. Fancy Rizzo wandering round West London with an amazing collar. Um. Anyway, the thing I love about Rose's costumet suits, and I'm sure I say it a lot in the interview, is that they have the ability to transform me. I'm not the most body confident of women. I, in fact, I've always been quite um, aware of the bits of my body that don't really do the things i want them to but actually i'll put on a sequin katsu and feel invincible and that is an amazing thing with an item of clothing isn't it and who as usual i'm rattling on so i will leave you to uh, the chat i had with rosa and i will see you on the other side uh yeah there's a lot of interesting things twists and turns in this one and i really enjoyed her company and i enjoy yours lots of love see you in a bit It's really nice to meet you. Oh, it's to be here. <laughs> um, I feel like upstairs I've got a room that's kind of like a shrine to what you create. <laughs> Am I one of your most prolific customers? Definitely. Or on the, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah
2: absolutely. <laughs> in
1: fact, look, we're near your yeah, sequin bunting. That. Yeah, so you're, that's the red sequin bunting. Mm. And then next door in the playroom, I don't know if you saw... Yes. Uh, I've got the multicoloured one. Yeah, well,
2: actually, that was, it was so <laughs> lovely. During lockdown, when you were doing the kitchen <laughs> disco, and I had so many people messaging me, sending me screenshots, going, is this your sequin bunting? And then when you're wearing the clothes, is it? Rosary, is this one of yours? Oh
1: Well, the thing is about the sequin bunting is I've had that up for absolutely ages. I can't remember when I got it now. I feel like you did it as a sort of limited edition thing, I think. Mm. Maybe about a year ago, a year and a half ago, I think. And I I, I put it up there then, and it's just been there the whole time. So it's it's a permanent fixture. Yeah. Um, And your clothes are just so joyful. And I think this year's been a bit... Mm. So I feel like t- even talking to you is going to just be a nice thing to think about, Aww. you know, sparkly <laughs> clothes and people in
2: festivals wearing yeah. them and all that. it feels like a bit of a distant memory at the moment, doesn't
1: it? I know, I know. I mean, we're recording this now just before Christmas, but actually this won't be going out until, um, I think, probably about February kind mm. of time. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we'll be in a slightly more optimistic spot. Yeah. I'm, I'm feeling kind of quite good about things. I mean, I've got a tour in May and I'm yeah. feeling quite yeah. positive about it right now. Yeah. And I saw some ridiculous one of the festivals. I've, I must follow them on Twitter or something. They'd done something that said, "Like great news about the vaccine. Now check out our, 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 our like festival lineup." Yeah, and I was like, yeah. "It's a bit too on the nose. That <laughs> you know, we're not supposed yeah. to be like vaccine equals buy tickets."
2: <laughs> I mean, I have to say that is exactly what went through my head when I heard about the vaccine. I was like, "Oh my god, Glastonbury might actually be able to happen next year."
1: I know well, that yeah. would be incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, so what what came first with you? The was it the, I mean, is, is something, going to festivals always part of your life anyway?
2: Mm, yeah, I grew up going to festivals. My mum used to take us to festivals when we were younger. So it's very much kind of a part of our childhood, kind of before really the, the whole sort of festival scene exploded. I feel like when I was a kid, there was only, you know, a small handful of them. Um, and we used to go every summer. And then, yeah, it felt like it just, that, that whole kind of scene just you know really took off in, in kind of in my teenage years and suddenly there was just like loads of festivals happening mm. so yeah it very much was festivals first and that kind of
1: okay yeah and so when you went used to go who's in your family do you have like siblings or?
2: yeah so I've got a brother and a sister um and my mum my dad used to come sometimes but he's a bit more of a homebody so it used to sort of generally be something that my mum would do with us
1: really so um, she'd just whisk you off like the yeah, three of you yeah and like yeah. camping and everything yeah saying, oh wow
2: yeah, God, your mum yeah. that's
1: impressive yeah on her own
2: yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, not when we were really young, um, but probably from sort of eight, nine, ten.
1: Wow, oh, still, that's um, pretty. is that glastonbury and things like that
2: no we didn't go to glastonbury actually we did smaller ones we went to um one called the big green gathering which Mm was a a lot of the kind of greenfield area at glastonbury is sort of connected to that one it was real kind of the whole festival was like solar powered and wind powered and oh wow loads of kind of like i don't know if you've ever been to the green crafts area at glastonbury like all that kind of yeah stuff so that that's a really lovely one and then we went to another one tiny little one in wales called beyond the border which was a storytelling festival Oh. Um, so yeah, not so much the kind of like big music festivals, but yeah, um, quite sort
1: of eco and yeah, f- yeah, quite sort of family yes, focused and very much so, yeah. It sounds a little bit like a sort of um festival version of something I used to be a member of, which I'd completely forgotten about till mm. I heard you talking, called the Woodcraft Folk. Have you yeah. ever heard of that?
2: Yeah. yeah. Uh, well you were a member it's of the Woodcraft. Like, folk. I wasn't actually, but I had friends <laughs> who were, yeah, it was kinda like the hippie version of the brownies. Wasn't exactly. It? Yeah.
1: And I really wanted to be a member because boys and girls were both members, so I yeah. thought that was quite exciting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is when I was like a primary school, but I mm. still knew that, that was quite exciting, mm. dynamic. Mm. Um And at first, there was a really long waiting list for the woodcraft folk. Yeah. And eventually, I was allowed in. Um, Yeah, i just (laughs) forgotten all about that. I did a couple of camps and things. But yeah, yeah, that was all kind of um, very ecologically minded and Mm. environmentally friendly and about, um, you know, they tell you like indigenous tales from faraway lands. And it was quite sort of, yeah, it was quite hippie and right on, but also really lovely.
2: Yeah. Um, (laughs) I feel like that stuff kind of makes quite a big impression when you're a kid because it's such a contrast to school and kind of the sort of rigidity of school yeah but suddenly yeah having that contrast I think is it can make quite a big impression on you at that age
1: yeah particularly I mean I don't know I think you're probably younger than me but I grew up in like in the 80s which was very much sort of Thatcher Britain Mm, mm. so I guess things like that were kind of like the counterculture Mm. in a way to the rigidity of you know big corporations and big Mm -hmm, money and mm -hmm, it was like well mm -hmm. no there's another way to do things so I think probably that that worked for me as well (laughs) even on that level when you're a kid it's a lot more cosy and comforting, and feels a lot more about your own future, maybe, when you're yeah. small, because it's all about what you're handing down to the next ones rather than mm. what you can get for yourself. Yeah. And when you used to go to these festivals, were you always dressing up? Was it quite a? Yeah, big
2: I mean, I I've, I love I've always loved dressing up since a really young age. Um, my <laughs> my dad tells a funny story when when I was four, and my so my my brother and sister are twins, and um, they were probably. T- two one and a half two my parents had the bright idea of taking us all to Peru oh wow um, on holiday for a month so we had my dad's brother and his family were living over there so they were like let's go and visit them I think they had a pretty stressful time with three children under four um, in Peru Um, but my dad tells this story about how we were halfway up Machu Picchu and apparently I sat down on a rock in a grump and said I want to go home and play with my dressing up clothes
1: (laughs) yeah I have to say taking small kids away you could show them the most incredible thing, but they're likely yeah. to be like, I'm poor. am kind of bit this lost on them. Yeah, exactly. This is not for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, Peru with three small people is impressive stuff. Full on. <laughs> and now that you have your own small person, you probably yeah. have a slight, even more oh like, respect for what Definitely. that might entail. Yeah.
2: Because
1: um, you now have one little boy. I do, yeah. He was yeah. just turned two in September, you said. Yes. So yeah. he's the same sort of age as Mickey, who's going to yeah. be uh, two next month. It's a very busy age. Mm,
2: it is, yeah. Busy yeah. is the word. Yeah, <laughs> high level of interaction. Absolutely.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. So Rosa Bloom, the your clothing, because is it right that your name officially is Rosa Bloom as well?
2: Yeah, so it didn't used to be. Mm. Um, I was born Rosa Hirsch Holland. So my mum is Hirsch, my dad is Holland. And so us kids got both because my mum didn't change her name when she got married. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I grew here. up Rosa Hirsch Holland. And then um, when we got married, well, actually, I, I fell pregnant about six months before, no, I basically, I was, I ended up being six months pregnant when we got married. So I fell pregnant a bit before we were planning to, I was not planning to get married pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it kind of actually brought the whole conversation about the name thing kind of more to the forefront, because I think, if I wasn't pregnant, we probably probably would have both just kept our names mm. um, and got married. I would have stayed Rosa Holland, My husband would have stayed Sam Ludgate. Um, but because I was pregnant, we were talking about what was the baby's name going to be, and so we, you know, thinking about surnames. What are we going to do? You know, obviously like Holland and Ludgate, it's a bit clunky. It doesn't double barrel very well, which is what my preference would have been. Um, so then we started talking about, well, oh, maybe we should just, you know, start a new family surname altogether. Um, And it was actually my husband who suggested Bloom. Um, And we kind of talked about it in a sort of jokey way at first. And then it sort of became a more serious conversation. And then we just thought, why not? You know, it's a lovely word. Um, So we just, yeah, went for it. But actually, when we didn't do it when we got married, you can't... If you're changing to one or the other person's surname, you can just do it on your marriage certificate. But if you're changing to a new surname, you have to do it through deed Okay. And we were in the process... Like shortly after we got married, we, were, we started buying a house and we thought, probably not a good idea to try and change our name partway through the process of buying a house. So actually, when our son was born, he was the first one to be Bloom. Um, so can so you do
1: that then? Can you, can yeah, you dictate? Yeah, you can give your
2: child any Any surname? Any name. Yeah. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, I know. It's funny, isn't it? So he was Bloom first. So for a while, all oh. three of us had different surnames, which caused a lot of confusion to some people um and then yeah we finally got around to doing ours so we're all bloom now officially. i think that's lovely
1: <laughs> it must have felt really empowering as well yeah to start it, something that's completely your own
2: yeah it did it did it felt like a really nice kind of glue um for the for the family yeah,
1: yeah. I, I honestly had no idea that when you have a baby i thought you had to i thought basically that there was a sort of default thing that you mm-hmm. had to be the well actually god i'm thinking about that is really old-fashioned to me to even not even question it Yeah. Because my kids are all Jones.
2: Yeah. yeah. And
1: like you, I knew for definite I wasn't going to change my surname. Mm.
2: Um, And did you have the conversation about what the kids' surnames would be?
1: Well, uh, again, a bit like you, when we had our first baby, it was a bit earlier than we were expecting. Mm. So Richard and I hadn't been going out very long uh, when we found out we're having a baby. Mm. Uh, It was about six weeks.
2: Wow. So um, (laughs) I don't think
1: there were lots of conversations being had about many things other than a kind of, ah! (laughs) (laughs) There <laughs> were just like so many things to organise. Yeah. Um like where we're we gonna live uh, and uh, where our second date should be.
2: <laughs> I think
1: surnames was like really far down the list. Yeah. And actually, because Richard's surname is Jones, mm. um I like the uh the simplicity of that and mm. I've always quite enjoyed the fact that you can put pretty much any name with mm. it mm. and then it's Jones.
2: Yes. You know, which yeah. I got
1: quite Sort of, some of them I've been a bit bolder with. So, like, my third is Ray Holiday Jones, mm, and mm. Kit is Kit Valentine Jones. And yeah, I think you can sort yeah. of be quite outlandish and then yeah. just put this real, like, no,
2: Bones. it's true. I definitely feel like having Bloom as a surname, you have to be a little bit more careful about what you put in front of it because it can kind of end up sounding a bit twee or a bit kind of like <laughs> a cartoon character like if I'm or a from a nursery rhyme or
1: something. Yeah. Have
2: you met the Bloom I mean, one? Rose Bloom is quite a hilarious name. I do get comments about that sometimes we are going oh <laughs> Rosa Bloom like it's sort of, you know it doesn't sound like a real name.
1: I think it's lovely though and it looks nice written down but mm. obviously that's what you'd already called your Yeah so it's actually company. a really
2: natural transition and, and a lot of people thought it was my name already so.
1: And, wh- and where um, did the name come from for the clothing then why did you decide? On um, that it nail? was a
2: nickname that a friend gave me years and years ago like before I started my business. Oh, she just started sweet. calling me Rosa Bloom, uh, Miss Bloom and it just kind of stuck and so when I was starting the business and thinking about names it just felt like quite a natural um yeah it just felt like the obvious choice really
1: yeah oh, well I think as well it, it works for what you do because there's something about this sort of optimism of the clothes mm. and obviously blooming is something mm. where it's really thriving it's flourishing so there's lots of positive associations and your brand is so sort of unremittingly positive isn't yeah. it yeah
2: yeah yeah, it is wearable happiness, one customer said. oh I was like, I'll take that. Wearable happiness. <laughs> that's is good, isn't it? That's gorgeous. Right, who needs to, you know, pay copywriters to come up with this stuff? Just ask your customers. No, that's <laughs> so
1: true. And I mean for me, I think the thing I feel is that, you know, it's it's one thing to have sparkly things. Um, and I am, you know, a bit of a magpie. Um, you're sat here looking at what you could probably see. I like bright colours and I like things that catch my eye. But actually, Um, when you're performing, or, or, you know, if if the onus is on you in any way, if it's Mm. your birthday party, if it's, you know, your wedding, whatever, Mm. um, it's not just, you want to feel um, that if if you're going to take on the sparkle, you actually want to feel empowered by it. Mm. And some sparkly things are just pretty, and they're kind of like, well, that's a nice sparkly dress, Mm. or that's a nice Mm. sparkly top. Mm. But I think your outfits have this element where it's almost like a a sort of superhero type thing. It's Um,
2: really interesting that you say that, because... That's that is the feedback that I get from people, and it's not like it was something that I consciously set out to kind of specifically create. I mm. just I just designed clothes that I wanted to wear. But a lot of people talk use that word empowerment. My friend calls her play suit her empowerment suit. She's like, I feel like you know yeah. when I
1: wear it, I get that as well. Yeah. I do, and you know, it's got beautiful details like the pockets and things. But mm. I must confess, I only when I knew I was going to speak to you, it was only then that I really sort of got to know the story behind all the clothes mm. so is it is it true that everything that I own will have been born in Bali mm.
2: yeah that's, that's really right. amazing yeah
1: and so can you tell us a little bit about the story of how how it mm. came to be
2: yeah <clears throat> so um I started the business when I was 24 just turned 24 um and I literally just booked a ticket out to Bali um, so I'd been working for another company before that called Fairy Love, um, and I started out working for them at festivals when I was a teenager, kind of on you know in school holidays. Um, and they had their stuff made in Bali, and I'd never been out to Bali while I worked for them, but just from what they said, it felt like. A really good place to go and start making things on quite a small scale because there's a lot of home industry there. It's not like going to kind of big factories and having to place huge kind of minimum orders. Um, It's fairy love
1: festival sort of wear
2: then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fairy actually, they make fairy wings and kind of like tutus and yeah.
1: As they should. If I went into fairy love and there were no fairy wings, yeah, you'd be disappointed, wouldn't you?
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, I think you know they had that real strong ethos before it was kind of. a a buzzword of like body positivity Mm. and body inclusivity and you know they'd make tutus into up to like a size 22 you know they were really into this was like you know more than 15 years ago now they were really into that thing of just like encouraging people to dress up Mm. and feeling you know putting on clothes that make you feel good make you feel Mm. empowered so I think that there's definitely kind of roots in that it taught me a lot because I think at the time that I started working for them I was quite a shy teenager. I was not confident about my body at all. And actually, they really kind of helped like bring me out of my shell in Mm. a way. Um, So I've definitely kind of carried that thread through in my business. So, yeah, booked a ticket out to Bali and literally just walked around the streets. And, you know, I, I had a suitcase full of. I've always kind of collected a lot of vintage clothes and kind of old circus costumes and all sorts. So I kind of had this suitcase full of like we'll probably outbid bits each bits from on my, eBay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, my kind of collection of, of sort of vintage clothing that I loved. Um, and just walked into little tailor's shops, you know, the kind of tailor's shop that, you know, tourists would go and get a suit made or something um, and started having bits and pieces made um and spent a couple of months out there and the first couple of years of of doing it were really like such an experiment I did such a variety of different things um and then the the sequins was one thing that I kind of hit on and it just took off like that was just what people wanted um I remember specifically those big sequins that you now use on everything yeah big round sequins and I remember um the first time I had a, a sample made of the sequin leggings and they took weeks and I kept calling out the shop and saying you know they've done because all the sequins are hand-stitched and they never kind of made anything with that amount of (laughs) hand-stitching on it so it took weeks and weeks and weeks to make the sample and I remember going into the shop and putting them on and just having this like light bulb moment of like wow these are amazing (laughs) and then they told me the price and I was like oh my god you know what I'd have to charge for those no one would pay that for a bit of clothing at a festival um, so, I didn't actually have any made to sell, and I took this sample back to England with me. What colour were they, these leggings? They were like a mermaidy blue. Oh, nice. Um, That's what I've, I've still got in my them. head, actually. I've still got the actual oh, pair. Cool. And I remember walking around the festival wearing them and literally having people almost like falling at my feet, <laughs> like, Where did you get your leggings from? I must have those leggings. So then I thought, Hmm, okay, I think I better, you know, actually make some to sell next year. And it just took off from there. And how did did you have to work out the price point, or was it actually what yes. they ended up being? So yeah, so I I just put the price on them that I had to put on them to mm. kind of make them you know financially viable, and people paid it willingly, and it was a real realization that actually you know if if people want something and if they kind of see the quality and recognize the work that's gone into it, they'll they'll pay that money for it. Um, so yeah, and then you know kept going out to Bali every year, spent two or three months out there every, every year. Um, and just um, end, I've ended up working with a woman called Annie, who's a Balinese woman. Um, and she she's a working mother as well, actually. She's an amazing woman. Um, she split up from her husband quite a long time ago now. I think he ran off with the housekeeper, possibly. Um, and she's got three daughters. Um, and she's a real kind of self-made woman. Like she taught herself pattern cutting um and set up her business and she's made like an amazing success of it and I'm now sort of her one of her main um customers and so yeah she's I've, I've spent a lot of time with her she's like my Bali mum so how long have you known you've known her for about 10 years you yeah just, yeah so probably when you 12 on, years now I'd okay yeah. and when you went
1: on that first trip when you were 24 was that on your own yeah did that feel yeah. quite quite a bold thing to do or
2: um, it did. I'd I'd gone travelling for six months when I was nineteen, when I took a gap year. Yeah. yeah, so I kind of had a taste and I was I was quite an independent um, person and quite I think I was sort of quite mature in a way and I, it didn't it didn't phase me that much going and, and doing that. And I think I also just had that slight kind of naivety that you have when you're that age where yeah. you just you don't think too much about things, you just go and do it and you just try and you just learn.
1: Yeah, it's funny, um, isn't it? Because I, I feel like I'm a lot more timid about those yeah, sorts of things I now. Yeah, I feel the
2: same. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Why does know, that happen? I know.
1: Why does that happen? Because you look back and you think, golly, i put myself in some situations that actually could have had really different outcomes. Yeah. But, yeah, what is that sort of um, invincibility? Mm. Or just a sort of... It's not even like you feel invincible. It's more like you just think, it's probably going to be all right, or I'll figure, so I'll figure yeah, something out. Yeah, you just out. work
2: it out, yeah.
1: But I do think independent travel... That's not something I have got lots of experience with, actually. Mm. And I'm quite jealous of it, in a way, because I never had the year out bit. Mm. And loads of my girlfriends did it and sent mm. like these amazing, you know, very impressive photos. Mm. But I do think it's quite a special thing to be able to travel and just be in your own company and mm. follow your nose. And
2: yeah. So did you meet Annie on that first trip? Not the first trip, but I think the second trip I met her. Yeah, and it was a really lucky meeting. We were introduced by a, a, a woman that I'd met. Um, and it was, yeah, really kind of lucky meeting
1: and we did um, this, the sequins themselves is that mm, something then that's easy to get hold of in bali is that quite a familiar so
2: site? initially i did i did source them in bali but the ones that were available there are not particularly good quality so i kind of quite quickly um worked on on sourcing de- best quality ones kind of direct from the factory so mm-hmm. the sequins are made in china um the actual kind of loose sequins and then they're shipped over to bali um and then all the the stitching is done in bali
1: well, it sounds like it's quite an enterprise you had to build, mm. on a, but for a small business, is that mm. is that quite challenging? It sounds really...
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it happened quite slowly, I suppose, over a number of years and quite organically. And I think I very much came at it, you know, I, I don't come from a very kind of business-minded background. I didn't start my business as an entrepreneur. I started it as a creative person who was just kind of exploring their creativity Um, so I've really had to kind of learn a lot of the business side of it as I've gone along, but I think that's just the best way to learn. You know, there's only so much you can kind of learn from being taught or reading books and actually do it, just doing something is the best way. And do you think in a way,
1: the fact that it had this sort of parenthesis of it being festival wear Mm. took off a bit of pressure, even though actually the mechanisms of what you're Mm. doing is the same supply and demand as you do in... In any line of work, but because you mm. kind of got this slightly slightly looser sort of framework, and people you've met probably, some of them are very businessy, some of them mm. not businessy at all.
2: Yeah, so it and that takes well, the
1: pressure off a little I bit, maybe. I think
2: what it meant was that it was very, what I was doing was very guided by my customers and guided by my own you know I I was making the clothes that I wanted to wear I wasn't thinking oh where's you know I wasn't doing loads of market research and thinking oh where's the gap in the market or you know what would the kind of um you know profit margin on this be or you know I wasn't I wasn't thinking about it in that way I was thinking what do I want to wear what do people at festivals want to wear Um, And then just having that, you know, I spent the good first few years of my business doing selling at festivals all summer. So, you know, from kind of June until beginning of September, I'd be on the road, you know, five days a week, week in and week out. So I had so much contact with the people that were wearing the clothes and buying the clothes. Mm. And I just learned so much from that. And I think that's why as well a lot of people now have quite a personal kind of connection with the brand is because that's how they discovered me. Um, you know, and they've met me and they've interacted with me and they've they've spent time in, in the shop at festivals. Um, and I think that's a, been a really kind of valuable thing for the brand.
1: And when you're setting all that up, is, is that alongside, do you have to have other jobs at the same time?
2: Um, no, I just kind of went for it. I moved back home with my parents for a few years before I could, you know, afford to pay myself anything. So I just was really frugal and I put everything that I had... I had a bit of inheritance from my grandfather and that was what I used to start the business. And I just, you know, I was so frugal, like everything, you know, when I was buying all the shop fittings for the festival stall, I was, you know, going to like clearance warehouses that had, you know, secondhand shop fittings. And I was like, everything was kind of off eBay or secondhand or out of skips or, you know, I had a mannequin that came out of the skip out the back of Marks and Spencers, you know, all that kind of stuff. So (laughs) I wasn't there kind of like splashing cash on, you know, getting the business off the ground. It was very much like making do with what I had um, and
0: just going for it. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
2: And
1: did your parents, did they, did they work when you were small?
2: Yeah, so I had a slightly unusual upbringing. I grew up on a community. There were three families living in a big, quite ramshackle farmhouse together. Oh, wow. Um, so they both worked, but they were both self-employed and they were both sort of working from home. So they were, we were kind of equally raised by, by both of them. Um, and in this sort of community environment, there were seven adults and seven children um, until I was about ten um so yeah it was definitely like a slightly unusual so were you born
1: into that yeah so the other couples were they were always around from the time time you were born yeah well there was
2: it the the it it sort of changed slightly over the years but for the majority of my childhood it was the same three families
1: um and did you know when did you first understand that that's not how everybody's doing it
2: um I think probably when people would say to me what's it like Living on a community, mm. and I'd sort of think I didn't really understand that question because I didn't have anything else to compare it to. So for me, it was just, not you know, it was my normal. um and that's all in the UK. Yeah, yeah, in Swindon. Yeah, which again <laughs> is like not a place where you'd expect <laughs> to find. It's like, I know, just because it's, it's Swindon, a shock, isn't it? Yeah, it's not. It's not a place that you'd expect to find a community, and it was quite a, a contrast. I suppose you know, I went to a very kind of conventional school in West Swindon. Um, and I was very different to the other kids at school and that was a struggle. That was difficult. So I feel like even though there were lots and lots of positives to the way that I grew up, that, that contrast was definitely quite a challenging thing at times. Um, but I wouldn't change it for the world because I think it, it gave me a lot. Um, yeah. and my parents still live there. It's not a community anymore, but okay. my parents still live in the same house. So what happened um, when you
1: attend then? Why did it stop being... It,
2: well, and it's given me like a very kind of realistic view of communal living. It it fell apart, it fell you know, apart. Um, and we moved away for a couple of years. The the house is actually owned by the council. My parents rented it from the council. So um, the community then kind of fell apart and a couple of years later they moved back. So since then, um, they've still kind of retained the community feel of it, um, but it's not strictly kind of run as a community; it's just been our family. But there is always lots of people kind of coming through. They run workshops and events there, so things like yoga weekends and yeah. Because I've got in my mind sorts. quite
1: a sort of fairly spacious place. Then, if there were to yeah, able to be seven adults over, and seven kids,
2: yeah. So the, the farmhouse itself um, is is yeah, it's a decent size. It's not huge, um, and the, the farm grounds are like three, just over three acres. So it's kind of small holding sort of size. Um, and it's quite odd. It's in the, you know, in the suburbs of West Swindon. So people, when they're coming for the first time, they're kind of driving through these sort of like red brick, you know, housing, housing suburbs and thinking, oh, we must be going the wrong way. (laughs) And then they turn down our lane and it's the only, the only street in the whole of Swindon, I think, that hasn't got streetlights. You suddenly feel like you're in the middle of the countryside. Um, so yeah, it's quite, it's quite a special place.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've got lots of questions. I mean, the only I've got one girlfriend I know that was raised in a similar way, but it was in India. Her parents mm-hmm. are originally from Australia. Then they moved to the UK. Then they went to, um, to India, where some of her siblings were born, and they had this uh, communal living as well. Uh, but I, I believe it was associated with a sort of cult uh, mm. aspect too. Um, but it, you know, is it, when your parent, you know, you sort of describe it as if it, is there like a sort of set form that's normally followed? if people decide that that's the way they want to raise their kids
2: um, no I think it can vary hugely you know some communities are based around religion um, yeah some I mean we ours was actually it was quite alternative but it wasn't even that alternative you know we we used to kind of wind people up like two of my oldest best friends who um, well, they lived there when they were very very young but moved away when they were I think about four but we were best friends growing up I'm actually going to see one of them this afternoon mm-hmm. um but we used to wind people up and, and tell them that um, when, so Holly and Meg, when their family left the community, their parents didn't, you know, the parents didn't really know whose children were whose, so they just picked a couple <laughs> and, uh, and took them. So, yeah, we used to kind of wind people up. Sounds but like was school pick-up time. It wasn't as kind of, you know, wild and, and um, sort of out there as people might think.
1: No, I think in a lot of ways there's quite a practicality to it. I don't know if you saw it, but there was an article not that long ago... I can't remember one of the newspapers did one, of them, but it's a brother and sister who've both um, both married. Mm. Uh, they both live in a house that's kind of, I think they work in like they're like lawyers and accountants, mm. you know, they're mm. quite sort of straight. Yeah. But they have basically got this very modern looking home that has this massive communal living space.
2: Mm.
1: And they do all their suppers in there for the kids and their weekends and all that. But then they've also got sort of separate mm. places they go. Yeah. And the way they described it actually made you think, Why not have more people doing that?
2: Yeah, yeah. But I
1: suppose if you had experience of it falling apart as well.
2: Mm. I mean, it sounds like they've taken the best elements Mm. of a community and then also kept, you know, I suppose, avoided the things that can make it um, more challenging. I think, you know, if you think it's hard enough kind of having a harmonious household with your own family, let alone (laughs) other multiple families.
1: No, that's really true. And, you know... you only really even within within that what goes on in each couple and the dynamic and the choices you're mm. making in child raising
2: exactly like even you know the the conversation about child rearing even just with the you know the father of your child and being on the same page about things and mm. how you want to approach things and how you want to do things um is, you know, that's, that's hard enough, let alone when you've got three families in the same space. And, you know, one family, you know, the children are allowed white bread for their sandwiches at school, and another family, the oh, yeah. children have to have brown bread. It's like this, all those little things. Yes.
1: Um, God, I didn't even think about all those. Well, and, and of course, as with any f- bit of family life, really, it does come down to the details. Mm, you know, it's, it, mm. that's, that's actually the fabric of what most day to day life is. It's mm. all the day to day stuff, isn't it? Mm, mm. Um, it's not kind of your ideology that you spend most of your time arguing yeah. about is it it's like yeah. tiny little tiny little decisions mm. that matter mm. um, or say speak to you about other things
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah but um
1: I should say as well when I mentioned my friend with the, the cult that's her her terminology not I'm mm. not like superimposing that I don't yeah. I don't really know too much about what her parents were up to with their mm. commune but was it quite distressing when it fell apart or did it feel quite natural
2: I mean I think you know I was so young I think it was much more distressing for my parents. Um, I think when you're a kid, you kind of just, those things sort of wash over you a bit, I think. Mm. Um, And weirdly, I think me and my siblings, we somehow always knew that we would go back there. We had this sort of blind faith that we would move back there.
1: So you weren't, um, you weren't in the same house at that time then? No,
2: so we moved, we moved out of that house for two years. Oh, OK. Um, and then they, then they moved back, And then the rest, of, the rest of the community left and my parents, my family moved back in when I was 12. Oh, wow. Um, so you had this two years where they were sort of... St- just lived in a townhouse in Central Swindon.
1: <laughs> right. I'm trying to get my head around all of it now. So did they... Do you think they wanted it to keep going then? Or did they think um, they were just like, this isn't going
2: to work? I...
1: I suppose it's hard I don't to say: know. Yeah. yeah,
2: hard to say. Um, they were definitely keen to move back when that opportunity arose. Mm. Um, and I mean it's it's such an integral part of them and who yeah. they are, and actually of me. you know I, I used to feel when I was younger, and I still feel it actually that when I you know, made a new friend, they didn't really know me until they'd been there and seen it, and kind of that then they kind of understood a bit more about. Who I was because it's it i'm definitely umbilically connected absolutely to it as a place. oh it's
1: hugely formative, mm. I mean, we learned so much in the first ten years, your relationship was so many things I mm. think mm. Are fused in by that time, yeah, and I suppose it's it's tricky isn't it, when you then become a parent yourself, and if your childhood isn't very similar to the childhood you had even if there were aspects of that childhood you found tricky, mm. you still turn up being the adult you are, mm. capable of having, you know, the relationship you have with your other half and, you know, your relationship with how you want to be a parent. And mm. it's quite hard sometimes to disentangle, you know, what, what you feel like people need to go through to, be for, to feel happy, find contentment in the long run, really.
2: Yeah. It can yeah. be quite
1: hard. Um, did it cross your mind to, to do anything like that yourself?
2: No not really um yeah it's it's not just sort of naturally something that I'm drawn to um I think there are there's I mean there were lots of positives from it um Mm -hmm. one of the things being that I grew up having new people in the house all the time you know there were constantly strangers kind of you'd get home from school and there'd be you know, someone random sitting at the kitchen table. And so I think it meant that as... I remember when I was a teenager, seeing my friends, like, not really know how to talk to grown-ups. Because mm. so the only grown-ups that they had a relationship with were their parents or their teachers. And often when you're a teenager, those relationships can be quite difficult. And I had just grown up always having other adults around that weren't my teachers or my parents. So I think I was just very used to getting along with and talking to people of all different ages. Yeah. Um, and I think that was a, a really positive thing that, that came from it.
1: Yeah, actually, I think, I mean, that actually kind of resonates with me a little bit and how I think the kids, my kids might experience their childhood too because it's a very busy home and there's mm. a lot of toing and froing. and And uh, I think for, for kids being spoken to on their own terms is hugely empowering and good for your morale and your mm. confidence. And yeah, it's true. It's very easy actually to get out the other side of you know, your entire upbringing and not really feel like adults see you and that, you know, that like the, the generation gap is huge. Mm. Whereas actually, I love the fact that, like, Mickey, who's, you know, the little one, he's he loves it when people come around, yeah. fresh faces, he's like, this is great. Yeah,
2: yeah. And
1: there's a, definitely a community aspect going on here as well. Yeah. A lot, a lot of people all the time. Yeah. And I mean, do you, I suppose, do you have, like, fond memories of things like Christmas and stuff like that then, of lots of people around the table?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um... I do. It's. I mean, Christmases there were just. I have. I have really kind of fond mm. um, memories of Christmases at the farm. Um, it's quite a. It was definitely quite a magical place. Yeah. Um Yeah.
1: And with the, was the dressing up all things that was happening throughout all of that time when you were really little?
2: Yeah, and I think that was just me. You know, that was just my kind of like quirky little personality. It's like I'd love you know going digging through boxes of like my old dresses and big floppy hats and all sorts, you know, whatever I could get my hands on.
1: Yeah, I mean, hearing you talk about it and saying, you know, when you said you were quite shy as a teenager, um, it sort of reminds me a little bit about someone we were talking about earlier when we were talking about um, Yvonne Telford and she was saying that she was quite introverted and sometimes you end up making these really loud clothing because Mm. you're, like, trying to find a way of sort of encouraging you to feel, like, seen. Yeah. And uh, it can be really powerful that, Mm. you know, Mm. I mean...
2: It's, it's an interesting one because, yeah, I think I am quite an introvert in lots of ways. And wearing the clothes that I make, it, I don't do it from a place of kind of wanting to be the centre of attention. It is that that thing of wanting to feel the empowerment of wearing that quite transformational piece of clothing that just makes you feel you know a bit different to your mm. to your kind of everyday self and it just gives you that boost you know that feeling of like walking around a festival wearing a sequin play suit and you just and you know, the sun's shining and like people are vibing and it's like it's just the best feeling in the world
1: it is oh it made me really miss all of that, that freedom <laughs> and being casual I, I think that's been the, the thing that I found the hardest about 2020 in terms of how the pandemic has affected sort of day to day it's casual stuff mm. it's the fact, that you have to think through every decision yeah. and how you're going to see someone and how long you can see them for mm. and what what's what the environment has to look like and it makes you realize how much of that is is not part of your normal way of interacting mm. with people at all yeah but those days will come back they yeah. will
2: they will and, I've got to, and it's know, gonna be i mean the vibe I, i'm just the picturing the first time that people can go back to a festival or yeah. even just, you know, go out to a club and be in a big crowd and dance, like, the energy is just going to be insane. I it, can't wait. It really
1: is. I know, it's going to be crazy. Um, so when you've been building up um, Rosa Bloom, the, I feel like I need to say, distinguish that, mm. the clothing, mm. um, was the motherhood something that was always on the cards for you, do you think? Is that something you always wanted to...
2: Yeah, I've always known that I wanted to have children. Um... And, you know, it happened slightly sooner than we were planning, but actually in the grand scheme of things, you know, we were we were engaged already and we were sort of on that track. Um, so, yeah, and it's, I mean, motherhood, it's it's the biggest kind of paradigm shift, isn't it, in your life that you go through. Cause it's like this thing that you've kind of imagined and that you've wanted and then it happens and you're like, whoa. <laughs> like it's incredible. It's all you know, that moment of like holding, I remember so clearly the moment of like holding my son for the first time and the the strength of that love that, that you just feel for them. It was like, ah, this is what people talk about. Like, I get it. Um, and then of course the flip side, you know, the challenges and the extent to which it changes, you know, who you are and how you do things um, and the adjustment to that. And it's interesting, I think, I think I was quite lucky in a way that um, you know, I had a fairly straightforward birth and I actually found the, the the kind of early stages like when he was tiny quite easy. You know, I was quite worried about being sleep deprived and all that kind of stuff. And actually I found that that whole bit quite easy. Um I felt like it got harder a bit further on, um, because I felt like I had a bit of a delayed um realization of the kind of full impact of becoming a parent and how that actually just kind of changes things so much in terms of, um, suddenly, you know, what your priorities are. And for me, you know, how I work and how much I work. Um, you know, I think before I'd always, because of kind of having built my business up myself and done, done so much myself, I've, I've been used to just being able to work whenever I wanted, work as much as I wanted to. Um, And it was quite a big shift suddenly having to not think like that anymore. And actually, we, we did the classic thing that I think a lot of people do of massively underestimating the extent to which having a child would affect our lives. And I definitely had this, I don't know why on earth I thought this, but I somehow thought that I could go from doing what I did in five days a week to just doing it, you know, when my baby was napping or, you know, the odd day here and there. Yeah. And so we, we didn't really plan for it in terms of actually thinking about the logistics of how it was going to fit into our life. So we ended up in a situation when Otto was about two months old, um, where I was getting really stressed because I was feeling like I wasn't able to keep up with my work and there were things that needed my attention. And I was struggling to find the time. Um, and it was my husband actually who sat me down one day after we'd kind of had a bit of a kind of family meltdown <laughs> was like, okay, what needs to happen is I need to stop working and I need to be the primary carer so that you can work because at that point, Um, you know I was the breadwinner really my business was was bringing in more than you know he was in the process of starting a business at that point that wasn't bringing in any money yet so he really took one for the team there and he was he was our son's primary carer for the first kind of good year or so of his life Um, and we we still shared it a bit you know I'd I'd, he'd usually do kind of the majority of the week and then I'd I'd do a bit Um, and it was really hard for him you know he actually was diagnosed with postnatal depression but only when our son was about one Um, and it took quite a long time for him to have that diagnosis I think because you know he was kind of struggling and you know having a difficult time but when he was looking up you know postnatal depression in dads the symptoms are very different to postnatal depression in mums and it would talk about things like not feeling connected to the baby or not feeling like you know how to help or, you know, it was all very much talking about the dad as the sort of secondary carer.
1: Mm. And
2: so Sam was like, well, that's not me. You know, I feel really connected to to to, this, to to my son. I feel really bonded to him. I feel like I know him really well. You know, he's an amazing dad. Um, and so it was only then when he was looking at actually how postnatal depression manifests in the mother that that was much more what he was going through, a kind of loss of identity, um, loss of self-confidence in his kind of professional life, um, all that kind of stuff. And I think alongside that, the thing that I think a lot of people go through when they have a child, and I know I've definitely gone through, where it does hold up a bit of a mirror to the things about yourself that you that are most challenging or that are most triggering you know maybe family stuff that you haven't dealt with from your childhood it brings all that up as well so I think alongside you know it's this kind of double whammy of like postnatal depression and him having I think also as women we're more culturally kind of prepared for the fact at some point we're going to have kids and it's still a shock and it's still a big transition but you've kind of known all along that that was going to happen if that was something that you wanted whereas for men they're not there isn't the same kind of I guess because still for the majority of people the woman is the primary carer and the man is the breadwinner um, it, it's an even bigger kind of and it's not I'm, I feel like I don't want to kind of undermine the 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 transition that women go through having a baby because that's a huge shift as well but I think it was you know just that extra kind of level uh, for Sam because we hadn't sort of that wasn't the plan you know we hadn't kind of thought about it ahead of time it was it was kind of a necessity at the point at which he took on that role um so yeah it was it was hard but it was even just having that diagnosis of of you know sort of realizing that it was postnatal depression was a huge Shift really, and a, almost like a relief, like, oh, okay, that's what's been going on.
1: <laughs> yeah, and um, then what, what uh, how How easy was it for him to find help and get out the other side of that, because that's a massive thing to go through mm, for both yeah. of you. Yeah, so
2: he, it, well he was seeing a therapist for a while, um, and I think that helped, and I think just understanding it, just yeah. going, oh yeah of course, you know, that's what's going on and then gradually just working on, okay, well what needs to change you know, how can we you know, structure our life and structure childcare in a way that is giving Sam back some of those things that he'd lost. Um, And actually now we're at a point, you know, our son's two and the childcare's very equal now. He's actually at nursery three days a week and then we do one day a week each. And Sam's back at a point of getting his business off the ground again. Um, So, yeah, it was getting those kind of practical things in place to give him back, um you know the the time to do the things that he'd that he'd lost
1: i mean there's yeah it's that's so interesting and i I think it's um i I suppose there's a couple of things there firstly, the idea of you know probably men talking about post depression is probably something that doesn 't come up that much in conversation um and also the idea of it happening so long after the baby's born as well mm. um because I suppose my probably you know really uninformed idea of postnatal depression was that it quite often had to do as well with the hormones and mm. the recalibration of what happens in mm. the mother's brain after yeah. you've had given birth and something not quite working out as it should.
2: Which I think does definitely, can definitely have an effect yeah.
1: But obviously for men they haven't gone through the the mm. big physical changes so no. I suppose I didn't really realise it would still have the same name
2: mm. Yeah, it's interesting isn't it and actually men go through a hormone change as well and I think there's been research done that when a man takes on um being a primary carer or having a very kind of involved role with the baby, it it that affects the level of which, like the the extent to which they have a hormone change as well. I think it means that their testosterone levels drop. Um so that is kind of relative to how much time they're spending with the baby. Which, which is, is amazing. Which is completely isn't it? fascinating. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh. I want to know more about all that stuff now. Yeah. I did I, I did read something very lightweight about the effects, you know, hormonal changes men, but I didn't realize that that it was sort of so related mm. to time. And I suppose there's so many things in terms of how things are structured that's normally so, you know, people know, only know or only really reference the typical even though so few of mm. us go home to the typical mm. or live the typical. Yeah. It's like there's a big gap, isn't there, between the way conversations usually work and then mm, what you're mm. actually normally doing. Yeah. I mean, you haven't had a typical childhood mm. and then the way you're raising your son at the childcare is not typical, mm. but I don't have typical versions of those either. Yeah, and yeah. probably most people I speak to don't.
2: Yeah, and um, I feel like for that reason, there's just so much that you learn once you're in it, once you're in the, the midst of it. And I think, you know, I even remember when I came out the other side of labour thinking, oh my God, why did no one tell me how horrendous it was going to be? <laughs> and, and I remember talking to my auntie, who is a retired midwife, and she was saying, well, they do, they sort of try to, but actually you can't conceive of it until you're experiencing it. And I think a lot of parenting is like that, um, that you can sort of understand things in theory Um, But then, of course, also there's so many variables and it's so different, so vastly different for everyone. You know, I think lots of people, the first bit is the bit that they struggle with the most, that initial kind of couple of months where you've just got this tiny being that needs so much attention and you're having sleepless nights and you know and then they kind of get into a groove whereas like for me it was the other way around it's like the first bit I actually found quite easy and then it was later on down the line that I sort of realized I hadn't fully like dealt with the transition from you know to becoming a mother
1: so how old did you say your baby that was when it was two months did you say when you felt like that
2: um so two months when he was two months old was the point at which Sam sort of became primary carer just um, still a very
1: little baby, actually. Tiny. Yeah, yeah, so you
2: know, I'd be kind of up in the study, like working on my laptop, and Sam would bring him up for a feed, and you know, it was very. When you kind look of,
1: back, you must think actually that is a lot to take on yeah. with a baby's that's you know single digit weeks old.
2: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but I just sort of did it, and I think because you know my business is like another child really. It's I, it's kind of my first baby. I'm it's so, and I have a similar relationship to it as you do to your child I think which is that it's so part of you and it's kind of integral to who you are but then there's also you you maybe also have those that same experience of the chat you know the challenge that that presents you with um and those times where you're just desperate for space away yeah Yeah. (laughs) but then as soon as you're away you're like you know can't kind of stop thinking about it and thinking oh, actually I kind of want to get back and- <laughs> well it's hard to
1: delegate okay. as well if you've been yeah. so closely linked to how everything is formed and shaped
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's really hard to let go of the reins yeah and I, you know
2: the whole business is run in a very personal way like I have a really personal relationship with my suppliers my manufacturers I have a really personal relationship with a lot of my customers so it's sort of make you know I don't have these kind of like structures and systems and handbooks and you mm. know manuals of like how everything's done so it's quite a f- sort of finely tuned thing really. Uh, But I think actually, I mean, a
1: few times I've had conversations with women like you who've set up businesses, I think that sounds quite, quite normal when it's something that you just have to, if you don't have that level of passion for it, it probably wouldn't have really kind of kept going or would stay, you know, quite a small thing. And is it something you still see yourself building and growing all the time? Is it like, have you got ideas in your head of where it heads? Do
2: you know, I've never really had a plan. It's always grown very organically it's evolved very organically um I've never sat down and gone right where do I want it to be in five years time um so yeah who who knows I feel like it sort of has a life of its own and I just kind of help it along
1: (laughs) and have you been back to Bali since you've had your little boy
2: yeah so we went when he was six months old Um, Yeah. (laughs) All three of you. Yeah, all three of us, which again was full on, you know, and I think I was still at the point then of not really making that many allowances in my working life for the fact that I'd become a mother. So, you know, we went out there and Sam was looking after our son the majority of the time and I was working every day. And I think I didn't really, it's only sort of now and I think sort of post COVID as well that. I've really had more time to think about and understand the fact that I can't just carry on working in the way that I used to you know I used to go and spend three or four months in Bali every year and that, that would be the the time when I'd be really intensively working on developing new styles and I just can't work like that anymore like it's not fair on our family um it's you know once our son goes to school it's all we'll gets more so it's thinking about and then with covid as well and thinking that covid's had a huge effect on my business you know obviously there's been no festivals not only have there been no festivals there's been no parties there's been no weddings like all the occasions to which people would normally wear sequins yeah have been just kind of wiped off the calendar so in terms of sales it's, it's had a massive effect and same thing i sort of kept trying to like you know organize this big photo shoot and then i kept having to cancel that and it's this real realization that i can't just keep like pushing to try and do things how i've always done them because actually all the circumstances surrounding you know surrounding my life have changed yeah covid i've had a child like every you know that that has to uh, change and affect how i work um so i'm still i think in in the sort of process of working that all out really and thinking about well what does this look like going forwards Um, yeah because also you're you know
1: i'd say it's still in the stage of like pretty early motherhood as well i mean Mm. i think certainly when i had sunny my eldest he's 16 now and i when i think back to the first probably like at least the first three years i think i didn't really know how to find myself very easily in all of that actually so it sounds like you you, your family have coped with really well with a lot going on and growing Mm. this business and everything your husband's been through
2: um, well, I don't know if we've coped well, but we've just kind of muddled our way through. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a feeling at the moment of like, oh, we sort of feel like we're just emerging from the other side a little bit of like, okay, it's been a really, you know, we, we, we crammed a lot in, in a couple of years. Yeah. You know, we got married when I was six months pregnant. Um, we had our son. Um, we... Bought a house a month after he was born, which we then decided to embark on a big renovation project. Did on. you do all that as well? So we opened house study, like, like three times in his first year. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, we lived in a tent and a caravan in our garden last summer, not the summer, just gone the one before. Um, what, when he was we like doing, one? He was like ten, nine, ten months. <laughs> While we were doing Up the House. Yeah, I mean, it's, we've had an absolutely crazy couple of years. That really so. is. You're doing
1: everything on, like, fast forward. Yeah. You should have one of those, like, if you have a video, you know, recording you all, you're yeah. like, sped it all up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a friend of
2: mine was like, she, she I, I kind of told her the, this, you know, everything that had gone on the last couple of years, she's like, wow, well, I feel like I've just been watching the Grand National. Like, <laughs> yeah, it does feel like that. It does feel like that. But I think in a way... It's funny, I think lots of people somehow do that. You know, they have a child and then they try and, you know, renovate a house. And they, you know, it's that yeah. somehow you you kind of get the bit between your teeth and just yeah. try and do everything at once. Yeah. And then I think you come out the other side of it and go, oh, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Um, but I think... You don't
1: know until you try what you can you cope don't with as well, try, do you? Yeah,
2: it's true. And I think also my husband and I both, even though we sometimes say, oh, I just wish, you know, life was a bit less busy or that, you know, we had a bit more time. But actually, I think we both really thrive off it as well yeah that, you know, I understand we're, that we're both quite kind of driven we both have a kind of perfectionist streak like we're quite kind of we like getting stuff done and we yeah. like achieving things so I think we kind of bring it upon ourselves
1: yeah <laughs> I I, I, yeah, I totally get that and I think as you say like there's a there's an excitement and momentum and I think particularly when you're you know you're with someone and the fundamentals are right you know you like each other you love each other you know having a, a baby is a happy thing uh, you so that nucleus can weather a lot actually mm. um i mean not not the same i didn't go back to work as quickly as you like that with my first i i ended mm. up being like that like much more speedy with the subsequent bubbles but I definitely mm. had loads of stuff going on mm. when I had my first and I was funny enough I was talking to someone about it yesterday and then I was like actually that was really stressful yeah sometimes <laughs> really you only stressful. realize it in
2: retrospect <laughs> yeah it's just like because <gasps> when you're in it you just do it you, know? you do
1: and I think as well for your family it almost sort of galvanizes a lot of it mm. uh you know, it becomes the, how, you, how you're forged. Yeah, yeah. And then it sort of suits you. Then you feel like, well, okay, well, let's see what else life. Yeah, and yeah. So much about parenting as well is just like, and and life and running your own business, which I guess we both do, is, is very reactive. So mm. you've kind of got the thing you quite like to do, but then you're also bouncing off all these other mm. unknown factors. Mm. And I'm like you as well. I, I never have a plan. I don't mm. really, mm. the five-year plan thing, I, I actually find it quite unsexy. I yeah. don't want to think about, where I'm headed with things. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Who knows? And I like, you know, I think there's also (laughs) something about, it's a positive thing about running a small business is that you can be quite nimble and you can be quite reactive and you can, you know, kind of make snap decisions about things. Mm. You know, things don't have to go through a lengthy sort of decision-making process. Um, And I think especially in, you know, with the year that we've had, that's a really positive thing
1: yeah you can be quite reactive and quick as you say. Mm. I like the word nimble for that it's, it's true that's yeah. exactly what can happen I suppose you if you can think it you just think right how do I make that become that and then yeah. you just join the dots don't you
2: yeah how I'm interested to know how did the transition from one child to two children compare to naught to one or would um, you say it was like a bigger transition or an easier transition no
1: I think nothing nothing rocked my world quite like the first that mm. was just like you know Yeah, all change. And I think that's why, because when I started doing this podcast, I had a few people saying, oh, well, so don't you want to speak to some working dads? It's mm. not about I me mean, not wanting to speak to working mm. dads. It's just that I'm a working mum, so yeah. I, I like talking to other working mums because yeah. so much of it I, I understand. Mm. And there's a shorthand yeah. there, and that's nice.
2: Yeah, my husband was a bit jealous, actually. He was like, how <laughs> come you're the one that gets invited? He was like, I don't mind as long as you talk about me in really glowing terms. Oh,
1: well, <laughs> please tell him thank you from me, actually, because I think even, you know, and also him
2: being open or allowing you to be open about mm. what he's been through is...
1: He's yeah, really I did gonna... check with him
2: actually that he was okay for me to talk about that and he was like actually yeah I feel like it's a really important thing for people to know about because yeah. it's still quite a sort of weird, you know it's it's a taboo enough thing for women going through it let alone dads Absolutely. going through it.
1: And when you described you know the, the you know the idea of this loss of identity all that stuff I think I think that's just like, I, I totally get that. I, mm. It didn't take me to a dark place, but I know that feeling. Mm. I know that feeling of just going, who am I? Mm. And I don't feel seen. And you sort of feel like the edges of you have been knocked off a bit and you feel really homogenised. And it must be as well hard for you if you've tried, you know, if you've hes said, look, I'm going to take over this, you go and do your business, and then you see him really struggling mm. with something yeah. that... its
2: there's a lot of guilt there.
1: Yeah, exactly. Definitely. I would, yeah. that's... I totally get that. There's mm. guilt involved in parenthood anyway, mm. but...
2: Oh, my God, from the very beginning. I remember, <laughs> yeah, why does no one tell you that? I know, like, the... the <laughs> actually, remember, it's not a really good
1: selling point, probably. Within, no, it's not. Within <laughs> about the guilt secret. two
2: days of finding out that I was pregnant, and it was a shock, like, we we weren't planning to get pregnant, and actually, we'd had a slip-up, and I took the morning-after pill, and it didn't work. And so I really was not expecting the pregnancy test to be positive. Oh,
1: wow, no. It's so amazing. it was a shock,
2: and I burst into tears, and it was this weird feeling, because I was thinking, you know, I know that I've always wanted to have kids, and I've no, always... Like felt so excited about the idea of that, and now this is just not how I imagined it. Like I'm pregnant, and I didn't really want to be pregnant. And and I remember talking to one of my best friends, you know, a, a day or two after I'd found out, and she was like, "Rosa, that and I, I was saying, I, mean, I feel bad that I don't feel more excited about this. Like I feel bad that I'm upset about the fact that I'm pregnant." And she was like, "Rosa, that's the mother guilt already <laughs> creeping in. Um, so yeah, the, the guilt is real. Oh, it really is."
1: But actually, I think sometimes um, going through that bit of being like, oh, golly, I'm not... I, I actually think probably most, most women feel like that for a mm. for a second. Even the ones who've been trying to have a baby for a really long time. Yeah. Because um, you immediately say it's the guilt, but also, as you said as well, it throws into sharp relief... You can always think I want to be a mum. Mm. You can also think I'm quite naturally maternal. Mm. But then this small person is coming, and you think, Am I? Yeah. And also, you know, there's the generalisations, and then there's the fact that when it comes down to it, mm. y- you you know, it's incredibly bespoke. Mm. There's only a, a, mm. you're the only person in the mum with that mm. baby, mm.
2: Mm.
1: and you might be billions of people with babies. But you're the only one with your baby. Yeah, that's wonderful and completely terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah so yeah that's all it all makes sense but it doesn't make it any any smaller in your head Mm. um and I think I would like to think there is a podcast where your husband can speak (laughs) (laughs) I don't mind being selfish in mine but um but I think you know there's all of that those dynamics are out there Mm. and I think it's really amazingly supportive that he just seems to go I'm going to step in there and put my plans on hold for a while amazing yeah but then it has yeah. you together represent... I mean, I think the fact that you've got the surname from your brand and mm. all of that mm. is sort of really testament to what you're all growing, really. Mm. And it's, it's mm. very apt that it's Bloom. I yeah. like that. Yeah. So how does it feel when you have that like, idea and there's Annie and Barley mm. and, you know, women sewing on the sequins and then you see someone like Taylor Swift
2: mm. wearing your... Mm. Does that feel quite surreal? Oh,
1: it's totally <laughs>
2: surreal. It's totally surreal. Yeah. Yeah, it really is yeah um, but then
1: I think your clothing it well, lends itself so perfectly to to performance yeah um, I remember when I first wore when I got sent uh, the first one I bought was the catsuit mm. in, um, in this flame I think it's yeah. called it's like a green to orange mm. and I put it on at home and went into my teenage son's bedroom and I was like I've just bought this and he was a bit like wow now there's an <laughs> outfit mum and I had a gig coming up that weekend, and I thought, you know what? So I'm just going to wear it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not someone that's particularly body confident. Mm. Um, and you know, in fact, I've had lots of times, you know, in my life where I've not been having a baby, and someone has thought I might be, and all that kind of stuff. Mm, so, mm. covering yourself in uh, lycra and sequins mm. might not seem the obvious thing to do. Mm. But as you get the older you get, the more brilliant that feels. Actually, yeah. just like just take it. Yeah, this is actually me, and I'm going to kind of celebrate all of that stuff. Yeah,
2: totally. And I think, you know, I I'm not a glamorous person. I don't lead a glamorous life, you know. I live in Cornwall, you know. Most of the time I'm wearing like some slightly muddy boots and, you know, got sand in the footwell of my car and, you know, it's not and actually so there is something like extra surreal about that kind of contrast of then seeing you know people like you on stage wearing the clothes but it's it's amazing I kind of love the sort of like collision of it of you know and also Matt you know talking to Annie and her her team in Bali and you know they were so excited when Taylor Swift wore that piece and it's just this kind of funny like collision of worlds colliding it's great I love it it is great
1: and also I think you know you're your bunting and your clothes became part of our kitchen disco in that kind of way of like going, isn't life so crazy and absurd mm, sometimes? Mm. And I like the caricature of that that like my my youngest sleeps in the same room as all my clothes. Mm. So every morning, when you know, whatever, when he wakes up, there's all this, like sequins, yeah. you know, cat suits and play suits and everything and yeah. capes and what have you. But why shouldn't, shouldn't those two things sit alongside each other? And the mm. fact that you can. Celebrate things that are glorious and joyful mm. doesn't mean that you're actually say disregarding or not sometimes dealing with really tough things mm. privately. But mm. it's just that you can actually people are in three hundred and sixty, aren't yeah. they? You know they, they, all those things can be running along simultaneously. Yeah, um, yeah. And I bet for your friends, I mean, do you think they always thought that this is something you'd end up doing? Does it feel like quite a natural?
2: Um, it's a tough one. I don't know. Actually, I have to ask them. I'm not sure. Um, I mean, the, the festival side of things is it was such a part of my kind of childhood and growing up and my teenage years. That was a very natural kind of progression. Um, but I never thought that I would end up running a clothing company, actually, when I think about it now. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny. It's, it it's that thing of like thinking back to yourself as, a you know, I don't know, 15-year-old or something, thinking, imagine like now if my 15-year-old self met my like the future Rosa just that would be such a kind of mind-blowing thing I think
1: definitely I mean what about pre-baby Rosa you the sort of mother you thought you'd be do you think
2: that's a really interesting one because I think uh, actually I was thinking about this on the train on the way here that I think you don't really know what sort of mother you're going to be until you're doing it Um, I I think I'm a more relaxed mother than I thought I would be I have quite sort of perfectionist tendencies in other areas of my life. I'm quite like particular about things and, um, I sort of try and not use the word control freak because I think it's, it has quite negative connotations and it seems to only be used in relation to women. You know, if a man had those characteristics, he'd be called, you know, driven and focused and, you know, ambitious and knows how he likes things done. It's sort of, yeah, you only really hear the word control freak in relation to women. So yeah, I think, um, Uh, but actually i'm yes i'm i'm kind of more relaxed i think than i thought i would be which is a nice feeling um and it's just joyful isn't it i mean seeing this little person who is so much a part of you but also so much their own person um and seeing things like i feel like there were elements of his personality that were present from so early on you think that's got to be nature not nurture you know like that's in his genes yeah um so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just absolutely the most kind of wonderful adventure yeah. seeing the person that he's turning into. Does he like a sequin cape? Yeah. And actually, it's <laughs> weird. He hasn't been exposed to sequins that much what? because, well, because of the fact that there haven't <laughs> been any festivals this year. They're not just
1: hanging up in your house like they are mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Actually, a lot of stuff's kind of packed away in like big chests. You know, it's not out that much. So, so strangely, he's, he's not actually been exposed to it that much. Um, but I mean, he will be.
1: Yeah, he definitely will be. <laughs> oh, well, uh, thank you so much for talking to me. And I feel like because uh, your husband asked for some glowing words, I'd like to say to him um, he sounds amazing. He's great. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, thanks again to him for his honesty. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I'm sure he will find his forum. But for now, I think you've got enough on your Mm -hmm. plate with your small child and your (laughs) amazing business. But um, thank you so much for all the sequins, I've got to say. Oh, absolute pleasure. It's helped me so much, definitely. I mean, you know, if there's ever a time when I sort of needed to find the power of playing dress-up and music, I mean, this year, like the whole you know your love of dressing up that really is a big thing in this house too Oh, good. just being silly and daft yeah,
2: yeah. and
1: changing yourself a little bit it's that transformational
2: thing isn't it and yeah. I think that was what was so lovely about seeing you know watching the kitchen disco during lockdown and kind of people sending me these screenshots going <laughs> you know look um because you know normally over the summer I'm at the festivals and I'm I'm getting that buzz from seeing people walking around the festivals wearing my clothes which is just the nice feeling and you know people like come up and tell me that they've made new friends because they've seen someone else wearing Rosa bloom and they've gone up and talked to them and then they've ended up like partying together the whole night like just it's just such a lovely feeling and that was completely missing from my life this year and it's been a real like big big absence so yeah seeing you wearing the stuff and then just getting such like positive vibes off people who were just you know I think the kitchen disco meant a lot to so many people Aww, that it was you. real yeah it was a real boost to us as well to to see that
1: well I feel I I think it's a bit like that thing you said about seeing people wearing the same outfit for me the disco is like just it's community you know yeah. I didn't invite invent how music makes you feel better or mm. how putting an animal mask on is funny or any of those things mm. but I think we just needed a bit of a lift. And you're right, yeah. normally it is, it's my day job, to be honest, you know, going yeah. to festivals and performing. And yeah. aren't we lucky that if really our imagination is the only limit to what we can put into our work? Mm. that is... That's a really big plus in the you know in times like this it's been mm. so brilliant isn't it yeah. and have... I
2: think what you did with that was you gave people permission to do the same you know you gave people permission to go and put on that outfit that you know you don't have an occasion to wear it to now like just go and put it on in your kitchen and similar thing like at festivals you know part of the thing that I love so much about being able to sell in that physical space rather than just online is creating that space for people to come into and giving them that permission and saying you can wear that like, you can you can
1: so that in that case i would say for, for otto next time you're uh, i don't know doing his lunch or something just put on of your cats yeah on. <laughs> i will it's time for the secret <laughs> exposure <expression> to begin <laughs> There you have it. Has that made you want a sequin catsuit? Come on, I bet it has a little bit. Um, If you do end up buying yourself something that sees you bedecked in sequins, you won't regret it, I promise. And I realised as well that in my introduction, I forgot to say that last week I had said I was going to be talking to Carrie Ed Lloyd, which was entirely my intention. And I have spoken to her, just so you didn't think I was totally making it up. We had some technical issues with the... Audio, which we've managed to rectify, but not in time to get it together to put it out this week. So sorry about that. But I think you would agree that Rose's chat was really lovely and informative. And, you know, we do speak sometimes, don't we, about when people have partners that are the primary carers in that way. um, Dads that are the primary carers. But the idea of a dad having postnatal depression that way and the way they might feel quite lost in that role is something we haven't really touched on before. So I did find that really interesting. And on that note, I do occasionally get people, I say people, it is always men, who have accused me of running quite a sexist podcast here. And I do understand that there is a need and a want for a voice for men who are the primary carers. I totally get that. And actually, my podcast is not even about... Talking to women because they are primary carers. It was more born out of the fact that I am a working mum, so I'm interested in talking to other working mums, but also the fact that traditionally women have been put in one role, and actually it's fairly recent that we've been in others. And I know the same is true for men. I know men are embarking on similar journeys in terms of exploring other parts of their character and other dimensions to them that allow them to be par- primary carers. Oh. Don't worry about it, Kit. You can hang out here. That's uh, my 12-year-old who's <laughs> <laughs> walked in. Kit, I'm just doing my recording for my podcast. Is there anything you want to say to anyone who might be listening? Yeah. Um, subscribe. Oh, for goodness sake, Kit. To my YouTube channel, oh, Project so. Animation and Film. That is so predictable. Uh, thank you, darling. Uh, anyway, what was I saying? It was pretty important stuff. Yes, I do think there's an important forum for... Uh, working dads who are also the primary carers because I think that's quite a relatively new thing and uh, and something that needs exploration. But I just feel quite selfish here, really, because I am someone who's still working it all out for myself and what it is for me to work and be a mum. And so that's where it suits me to talk to other working mums. And I'm not sure I really needed to go into all that right now. Kit, why on earth did I start talking about all this? What? Yeah. I said, why, do I, why did I go into all this? I do think probably chances are at the end of the podcast most people are switched off by now. What do you think? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's probably just you and me and maybe one other person here. Um, so there you have it. Anyway, next week I will be talking to Carrie Ed And thank you to Rosa. And thank you also to Rosa's husband for allowing her to be candid about what he's experienced because I think it's really important to hear about that. And I'm really grateful and I think that's probably me for this week. And I hope you are well. I hope the sun continues to shine this week. I will see you next week for another yeet. chit-chat. Sorry? I
0: said
1: yeet. Yeet. What does that mean? You don't know what
0: yeet means. No, to what to does yeet mean?
1: To throw something. Sorry? To throw something. To throw something. Well, like an object. Yeah. Okay, why would I say yeet? Kid. Oh, never mind. All right, lots of love. See you soon.